Directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan in 1952, Singing in the Rain began life almost a quarter of a century earlier. With the successful transition to talking pictures, every major Hollywood studio was keen to exploit the newly minted genre of the musical, for which they found abundant and ready-made material on Broadway, like Showboat, The Desert Song and The Dance of Life. As for the executives at MGM, they commissioned Arthur Freed and Herb Nathio Brown to write a number for their upcoming extravaganza, The Hollywood Review of 1929. And while not an adaptation of a Broadway musical, the producers were modelling it after the Ziegfeld Follies, which had been a constant feature on the Great White Way for over two decades. In fact, Ziegfeld itself was fashioned after the Folie Bergère that had been running in Paris since the 1870s. When Fried and Brown presented their new song, the producers, Irving Thalberg and Harry Raff, instantly knew they had a showstopper and duly decided to have her performed no less than four times across their film. Soon after that, it was released as a single, and performed by Cliff Edwards, it went to number one for three weeks. As for Singing in the Rain, the movie, that offers much more than just musical delights. For starters, it presents a nimble description of a crucial episode in Hollywood history, the transition from silent to sound. And as George Lucas famously said, sound is half the picture. So picture these films from just their sounds. Now, before we go any further, a clarification is needed. It is often claimed that the development of synchronised sound is the single most important development in the history of cinema. That is not true. The single biggest development in the history of cinema is editing. Without it, we would still be telling stories with one single shot. As a comparison, consider punctuation in writing. The full stop, comma, colon, semicolon, question mark, exclamation point, dash, hyphen and the ellipse. Not only do they assist the writer in developing sentences and paragraphs, they also assist you, the reader, in discerning when you might take a new breath, even if you're reading to yourself. And while there are some feature films consisting of one single unedited shot, Mike Figgis's Time Code, Alexander Sukharov's Russian Ark, and Sebastian Shipper's Victoria, no matter how mobile your camera, the single shot severely curtails the type of story you can tell. Take editing away, and would we have Battleship Atemkin, Nishan Andalou, Psycho, Lawrence of Arabia, or 2001? To finalise my point, the addition of sound to film is editing, lining it up so it is synchronised with the image. Consider the sequence from Singing in the Rain when, at the test screening for the Dueling Cavalier, the projector snarls up and the preview descends into fiasco. What's that? The sound. It's out of synchronization. Well, tell them to fix it. Yes, sir. What's this? Yvonne, captured by Rouge Noir, the purple terror. Oh, oh, my sword. I must fly to her side. Yvonne. 
miles away, you witch. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No. As the sound and picture fall out of synchronisation, the scene works dramatically. But it also works aesthetically. Not only does it forward the plot, it makes clear that when experiencing film, we can see one thing and hear another. Lena Lamont's princess, played by Jean Hagen, cries out for help, but the voice we hear is not hers. It is that of her attacker. And in this age, when no means no, and not yes, 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 History has afforded the sequence another meaning. But in terms of film's grammar and vocabulary, it also repeats the way the film opens. At the premiere of his latest picture, The Royal Rascal, Donald Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, is asked to recall how he got started in motion pictures. I've had one motto which I've always lived by. Dignity. Always dignity. This was instilled in me by mom and dad from the very beginning. They sent me to the finest schools, including dancing school. That's where I first met Cosmo. And with him, I used to perform for all of Mum and Dad's society friends. But while we hear Donald telling us about his dignified rise to stardom, what we see is so far removed from his narration as to utterly contradict it. However, since we are more inclined to believe what we see instead of what the narrator tells us, the film will have to synchronise the voices of the picture in order for the whole truth to be fully told. That is the real synchronization at play in Singing in the Rain. Yet that process was ironically untruthful. Even before the technical foul-up that ruins the screening for the Dueling Cavalier, there was the problem that its leading lady Lena does not have a voice to match her looks. Hilariously played by Hagen, Lena represents a number of female stars, Vilma Banke, Mae Murray, Norma Talmadge and Dolores Costello for instance, whose careers were stunted by the transition to sound. When audiences finally got to hear them speak, their allure was lost. So Lena is sent for elocution lessons. No, no, Miss Lamont, round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 So Kathy Selden, played by Debbie Reynolds, comes in to dub both her speaking and singing voice. As a comedic trope running through the picture, it works wonderfully, but there is a double layer of irony. Because, while Jean Hagen had already established a career for herself, for Debbie Reynolds, Singing in the Rain was not only her first starring role, it was the very first time her name appeared anywhere on a movie poster. She'd only had speaking parts in four previous films. But more than that, for the sequence where Reynolds dubbed Hagen's speaking and singing voice, it was agreed that Reynolds' voice did not work. So Hagen's voice was used to dub for Reynolds. In 2008, the AFI voted Singing in the Rain in the top 10 greatest American films of all time. Although thoroughly deserving, that a musical ranks so highly is very unusual. Only six other musicals are listed in the top hundred. Why? For all the profound joy musicals can deliver, too many people all too often dismiss the genre for lacking any profound meaning. 
I mean, what is Mary Poppins really about, other than a nanny who uses her umbrella for transport? Mamma Mia is nothing more than a rethreading of Abbott's greatest hits. And La La Land? Seriously, what was La La Land really about? But that's not true of musicals at all. Through music, West Side Story tackles bigotry and prejudice. Cabaret examines Germany's descent into fascism. And what does Glee do, if not face down, homophobia? But what of Singing in the Rain? The discrepancy between what we see and hear, between illusion and reality, are recurring motifs throughout the picture. First off is the making of a film within the film, where we get to see what goes on behind the scenes, and that reveals to us the truth about dubbing. Then, after the premiere, Donald jumps into Cathy's car, who pretends neither to recognise him, nor go to the pictures that often. A couple of weeks after that, Donald meets Cathy on the back lot, but rather than profess his attraction to her, he steps onto a soundstage and uses film equipment to simulate the mood to do it for him. A beautiful sunset. Mist from the distant mountains. Coloured lights in a garden. A lady is standing on her balcony in a rose trellised bower. Flooded with moonlight, we add 500,000 kilowatts of stardust. A soft summer breeze. In the decades that passed between Freed and Brown initially writing the song and Singing in the Rain going into production, Brown continued writing, with Freed going into producing, putting together a constellation of talent so fertile that it became known as the Freed Unit. In a blistering streak, MGM released Meet Me in St. Louis, Yolanda and the Thief, Easter Parade, The Pirate, On the Town, Annie Get Your Gun, Summer Stock, Showboat, and capping it all off in 1951, the Best Picture Oscar winner, an American in Paris. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. I got daisies. I got in green pastures. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. As for Singing in the Rain, it really got started two years earlier, when Freed and Brown sold their back catalogue of songs to MGM. At which point, Freed suggested to the studio that they make what he called a catalogue picture, a movie that would be structured entirely around Freed and Brown songs. Which means that the 1950s audiences would have been very familiar with almost every song performed in the picture. They had already been performed in earlier pictures. For instance, All I Do Is Dream Of You was first sung by Gene Raymond in 1934 for the romantic drama Sadie McKee. Spring. 
Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney were the first to sing Good Morning from the 1939 picture Babes in Arms. Good morning, good morning. We've danced the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. Here is Jeanette MacDonald singing Would You in the 1936 melodrama San Francisco. In his arms, would you, would you? He tells her of her charms, would you, would you? They met as you and I, and they were only friends. But before. And last but not least, Eleanor Powell sang You Are My Lucky Star from the Broadway Melody of 1936. which means that there was only one song that was composed specifically for Singing in the Rain. And even then, Make Him Laugh, performed by Donald O'Connor, sounds remarkably similar to Be a Clown, a number originally written by Cole Porter for Easter Parade. Be a clown, be a clown, all the world loves a clown. Be a crazy buffoon, and the As with the plot of Singing in the Rain, Screenwriters Betty Comden and Adolf Green model it on Excess Baggage, one of the earliest sound pictures made in 1928. What Comden and Green did was update the setting from the vaudeville era of 1890s Broadway to 1920s Hollywood, just as it was converting to sound. Which goes a long way in explaining the breathtaking 13-minute sequence that for me serves as the film's creative climax. In the Broadway melody, yet more illusions are spun, this time mixing a musical a gangster picture, a surreal dreamscape, as well as all manner of dance disciplines. Without question, none more impressive than the incorporation of ballet and jazz. And it is there that Kelly dances with Sid Charisse. Odd as it may sound, their duet was the victim of censorship, because it was deemed that the very leggy Charisse had wrapped her limbs too tightly and too suggestively around Kelly's hips. Watch the film carefully and you will notice a very sudden jump in an otherwise flawless and fluid movement. So, is Singing in the Rain just about the interplay between illusion and reality? How about this? It is also about a woman getting her voice heard. The film begins with Donald unreliably narrating his rise to stardom. But no sooner has the Royal Rascal had its premiere than he meets Cathy whose low opinion of movie stars throws him off kilter. With his confidence bruised, there is the possibility that the plot might, just might, follow the trajectory of A Star Is Born. 
It does, sort of. By the end of the film, we do see Kathy's birth as a star. But crucially, her star will soon eclipse that of Lena, a woman whose career will only continue if she agrees to remain silent in public. Even though the film begins in the silent era, the one voice film fans can hear is that of a man. Donald's words mythologise and thus make his fictional story fact. But Kathy's life is not mythologised, so the plot is her testimony told through her voice. And in this modern age, that adds yet another reason to keep watching and listening to Singing in the Rain. <laughs> 